The following content is provided to you as a ministry of Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a high-adventure Christian wilderness camp in Andrews, North Carolina. Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters exist to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through the exposition of Scripture and personal relationships in order to equip the church to impact this generation. For more information, visit our website at swoutfitters.com or follow us on Twitter using the handle at SnowbirdSwo. Enjoy the message. All right, turn to Matthew 7. We're going to talk tonight about choices. Choices. Try to convince you guys not to smoke and watch rated R movies. Make good. Ch- I'm just kidding. That's not what we're talking about. <laughs> when I was a kid, I uh, had these things called after school specials. I don't know. Y'all probably, all of y'all too young to remember that, but uh, some of the adults remember. And come on, I don't know how often they came on, but they were like these little life lessons. I remember there was one where they're trying to teach you not to smoke. <laughs> oh, it just made me want to smoke. I wasn't a Christian. Like, tell me not to do that. Paul says it, it's totally biblical. Paul says in Romans 7 um, that where the, like, if you tell me don't do something, immediately then I want to do it. And that's kind of the way the human nature works. But I do want to talk about choices. Choices. There's a famous line in a famous poem, I believe, it's by Robert Frost. Somebody correct me. The Road Less Traveled. Who, who's, is that Robert Frost? And in that poem, he talks about these two roads, roads that diverge, right? There's this, there's this crossroad. There's this fork in the path. And which way I go really determines more than just the next few steps or moments. It's, it's, a, it's a poem that's teaching us a story. It's, an, it's, a, it's a story about life and the path that I choose as a Christian makes all the difference over the next decades and even into eternity. And so Jesus in Matthew 7 brings us to a place where there's a choice that has to be made. And you'll see Jesus put choices in front of his followers, in front of crowds. There's one place uh, where the scripture records that Jesus preaches in this series of cities called the Decapolis. Deca just means ten. And so 10 cities, Decapolis. So he's traveling around, he's preaching these 10 cities, and these massive crowds are coming to hear what he's got to say. He's, he's, the, he's the greatest preacher the world has ever known. He's the greatest preacher that has ever stood in front of people and preached the gospel of the kingdom. So people were drawn to him, but he would also perform miracles, which was, you know, that would draw people too. And so there were people there to see the miracles, but they weren't really there because he had the words of life. They were there to be entertained. And so Jesus preaches one particular sermon that's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And you can read that in Matthew 5 through 7. And there's a, there's a moment at the end of that sermon where Jesus starts to shift from, this is what good sermons do, he starts to shift from the main point of the sermon to the application of the sermon. The main point of the sermon is that the Christian life is a call to action, that action is subsequent to the saving work of God in your life so salvation is by grace through faith it is not of works we can't brag about the salvation we've received but then we're called to action we're called to live out just as we saw in Daniel's life this morning the Christian life and so when we study the Sermon on the Mount we see that there is this call to action that Jesus puts in front of the believer and so pick it up in Matthew 7 and we'll begin in verse 13, it says, enter by the narrow gate, 
For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. If we live out the Sermon on the Mount responding in obedience and action, two things will happen in the life of a believer. We will bear fruit and we will endure under trial and persecution and hardship. You'll bear fruit and you'll endure under trial and persecution and hardship. Martin Lloyd-Jones says of these two verses, and we're going to go down through verse 20, but Martin Lloyd-Jones says of these two verses that they provide for us the main point of the Sermon on the Mount. The main point being that the way is narrow. This life is narrow. The truth of the gospel is narrow. The demands of the gospel are narrow. So let's consider four observations from these two verses. Observation number one, not only is the path narrow, but the entrance to the path, the gate is narrow. The beginning is narrow. This is because the demands of the gospel are narrow. In order to enter this gate, certain things must be left outside. Certain things must be left behind when we enter the gate to the narrow way. The first of these things is worldliness. Specifically, I leave the world behind. It's no longer my source of joy. It's no longer my source or my pursuit or purpose and value. Additionally, I leave the way of the world behind. This involves the mindset and patterns of thinking. The world defines relationships, sexuality, value, and quality of what life should be. The world assigns certain emotions to certain situations. The world provides pleasures that are inherently worldly, but that do not offer anything beyond this life, meeting the inerrant needs of our souls and, and our experiences. These are very shallow. Jesus offers us true and lasting pleasure. Jesus, in his word, defines these things for us. And Jesus establishes a sort of upside-down kingdom that flies in the face of the world and its value system. So as the world says, here's the answer to our problems, Jesus says, no, we've got to turn that upside down. You've got it backwards. Jesus says we should love and forgive. We should not be defensive, at least not when we are wrongly accused or ridiculed for our faith. Jesus says we should give sacrificially of ourselves and our possessions and that we should not love this life. Everything Jesus calls us to is contrary to the way of the world. When we follow Jesus, we fix our eyes on an upside-down kingdom, one that will last for eternity. When we take up our cross, we die to this world and all that it offers us is a source of joy or purpose or hope or value. There's an obsession right now in finding peace with the world. People are often very uncomfortable with the demands of Christianity, but more uncomfortable by the fact that Christianity tends to run counter to what is popular in in a secularist and humanistic society. We shouldn't be surprised when we're called out or canceled by a secular and progressive world. Let me tell you what I've seen to be true in my half century of life is that when people begin to pursue worldliness and peace with the world, They begin to condone the things that Jesus clearly preached against. And when they begin to celebrate the things that the early apostles died for, they are just a few steps away from walking away from the gospel of Jesus Christ and abandoning the faith that we are called to contend for. But you've probably heard it said that the gospel never makes sense mathematically. The scripture says that if every single man be found a liar then what Jesus says is to be found true, even if it's in contradiction. 
So what does the world do in the spirit of Babylon? The world tries to marry a new and secular version of Jesus that is biblical and demonic, unbiblical and demonic to a new version of the gospel. But there's no other gospel. Listen to Paul's words in Galatians chapter 1. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. That word anathema in the Greek, accursed, means condemned to hell and torment and separation from God for eternity. Those who preach a gospel other than the gospel that Jesus preaches invite a curse on themselves. Having a conversation with a pastor who's here today at lunch who spoke of staff members from Snowbird in the last five years. Listen to me and be warned in that section back there. I love y'all and I would die for you. The staff that serves here are like family, but people who sat in these seats, led share groups, shared the gospel of Jesus Christ, left that gospel, turned back, and began to draw people away from that gospel. They stand to be condemned to an eternal torment, separated from God. They will stand before God and give an account. Jesus said, it is better that a millstone be tied around your neck and you be cast into the ocean than that you cause a person to stumble when it comes to the gospel. We've got to be warned. We profess faith in Jesus. There's an expectation that is placed on us. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed anathema condemned so resist the 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 pure so resist the pressure and the desire to somehow stay christian while finding peace in the world that is attacking jesus constantly we can love people we can care for them we can meet people where they are and we should but we cannot abandon the gospel the most loving thing you'll ever do is speak the truth and call people to repentance and then live that out in front of them but we do so knowing that it will invite ridicule and even persecution as our brothers and sisters in countries like Iran, China, the former Soviet Union, and the early Roman Empire can testify. So we leave at that gate worldliness and the way of the world and the philosophies of the world, but we also leave at that gate ourselves. I leave myself behind when I enter the narrow gate. I love the Bonhoeffer quote that many of you are probably familiar with, that when Jesus calls a man, he bids him to come and die. And Jesus himself, preaching in the gospel, says that when Christ calls a man, that man is to then take up his own cross and die daily. Paul would go on to say to the Galatians, I am crucified with Christ. When Christ is crucified, I'm crucified with him. And may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of Christ Jesus through whom the world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. Each of us in our fallen and sinful nature are motivated and driven by self-preservation and self-pleasure. But when we deny ourselves, particularly the flesh and its demands, and we pursue what Jesus offers, we are entering a very narrow gate that few will walk through. So the gate is as narrow as the way. Second observation is this. The way is narrow because the way is difficult. The harder something is, the fewer people will participate. I met a guy one time. Uh, it's pretty cool. Met a guy. He's a fighter pilot. You don't meet many fighter pilots. I've met two. 
like literally two. Talked to one of them today. He's a big Snowbird supporter, a good friend. He's from, where's our Centerville group, our Warner Robins people? He's a, he, he flies F-15s off that base there where, where y'all live. And, uh, but anyway, I talked to the guy today, and he, we're just texting back and forth. That's, that's pretty cool. What do you do for a living? Fly F-15s? Like, that's like next level, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's like, uh, hi, my name's Tom Brady. You might have heard of me. I've done some things. You know, like flying F-15s, that's up there, right? Be, like, that's elite, okay? And so I remember I was, but the, but the other fighter pilot that I met was awesome. He was a fighter pilot in the height of the Cold War. So most of y'all wouldn't remember the Cold War, but it's crazy times, crazy, crazy times. When I was growing up, we would have these things, these, these air raid drills at school. And we would have to, like, get under our desks, and it was crazy, like, imagining that a nuclear attack was coming from the Soviet Union, and it was this constant, like, looming fear. And, uh, and I remember there was a movie that came out in 1984, the original Red Dawn, that rejuvenated something in us that were like, bring it on. We started stashing little Debbies and Beanie Weenies out in the woods and five-gallon buckets and Oh, man, I remember me and my cousins and an uncle put a bunch of little Debbies in a, in a bucket and hid it up in the Shining Rock Wilderness. And we went back. We, last summer, we were up there fishing. We're like, I know where there's some snacks. <laughs> so, like, let's don't wait for the apocalypse. Let's go get some star crunches, right? Amen. That's, that's what I'm talking about. We go up there, and a bear had gotten into them. They were gone, man. It was just like a thousand rappers, you know. But I remember at the height of the Cold War, there was this fear of attack, and so I met this guy, and he's like, I, I flew, I flew F-16s and F-15s from like the late 70s through the mid-90s, and I'm like, you flew during the Cold War, what was that like? He said, he said, let me show you a picture, he, he, he shows me a picture, and it's a Soviet MiG, which is a Soviet fighter jet, and this dude flying off of the wing of this Soviet MiG, and the picture was taken from his wingman. I'm like, what's up with that? He said it was a Cuban defector who flew this plane under the radar, landed in Florida, somewhere down around Miami, landed that sucker, got out and put his hands up and said, I surrender. I don't want to go back to Cuba. Because listen to me, young people, socialism leads to communism and communism is bad. Okay. I grew up seeing it. Y'all ain't never seen it. And so everybody's like, woohoo, socialism, that's bad. It, no matter how you paint the picture, when you steal other people's stuff and let the government manage that, that's not good. That's a, cor- government is corrupt, and you don't want them managing your stuff, okay? And so this guy defects, lands this, the MiG. So, so, our, so uh, like our guys go through this thing. Is there any technology we can learn from it? Blah, blah, blah. So then they, they call Castro. They're like, hey, you want to send somebody over here to get your airplane? This is crazy. I'm listening to this guy. This dude's like in his 70s. He's like, just like telling it like he's talking about going to a little league game or watching a good movie or something. It's like real casual. And I'm like, oh my goodness. And so Castro sends a pilot over to get the plane and they fly it back. So we, this dude and his wingman escort him back into Cuban airspace. And he had his wingman take a picture. He said, it's the only Cold War picture of a Soviet MiG and an American fighter flying in formation. That's pretty cool, huh? Like, that guy wins every campfire storytelling session, you know? Like, well, there was this one time I was escorting a Soviet MiG back into Cuban airspace. Oh, I won a really big stuffed animal at the Haywood County Fair. That was awesome. I threw the softball, hit the fuzzy thing. It was awesome. Threw the ping pong ball in the duck's mouth, whatever. Like, that guy wins, right? So I said, hey, man, what does it take to become a pilot? Like what, because when I was in high school, Top Gun came out, the original Top Gun, and I was like, that's me, I'm doing that. 
I'm going to do that. I was, th- I was torn between an NBA career, being a fighter pilot, um, and I decided to let Jordan have the NBA thing. He was, seemed to be doing real good with that. So I was like, you know what? That's your thing. You keep it. You know, you run with that. You do what you do, okay? I'm on, so I just decided not to go into the NBA. <laughs> I decided, okay? And the, the fighter pilot thing didn't work out either. We won't go into that. You've got to make good grades and stuff, and you've got to be good at math and stuff. And so I asked him, I'm like, how many people try to become fighter pilots, and how many people actually become fighter pilots? He said, he said one in a thousand, the, not people that apply to be in the Air Force or to be in the pro, he said, of the, of the people that come through various aviation programs in the military, one in 1,000 of those people who apply to, f- to fly the, the most advanced fighters get accepted into the program. That's elite, right? And so you know what most people do? What I did. They don't apply. I remember I was, I was straight up, I was like, saw Top Gun, I'm in. That's me. Man, I'm like, I'm hearing Kenny Loggins play that Danger song Danger Zone song in the background. I'm driving around in my F-150, like, with Danger Zone playing. Like, I am literally in my mind as a 17-year-old destroying single-handedly the Soviet Empire, cruising around in my F-16. It's on. I got, y'all see those little things that say, like, baby on board that people will put. Nowadays, people put the little stickers of all the family members. Back then, they had these little things. You put them on your window, and it's the little thing that swings back and forth. It looks like a caution sign. Mine said F-16 pilot on board. True story. What a nerd. You remember the things you did as a teenager, and you're like, what a dork. I was, so, I was such a geek, you know? But I was, man, but I saw Top Gun. That was me. I was going to have, a, I was gonna have a, a Honda Hurricane motorcycle and fly F-16. So, so then I remember my junior year, I'm like, I started researching it. So I went and talked to the ROTC guy at my high school, his Air Force ROTC. And I'm like, what do you got to do to be a fighter pilot? He said, you watched Top Gun, didn't you? <laughs> I was like, yeah, man, what you got to do? And he started giving me the, cr- like, what you got to do? Like how, like, how much of a long shot it is. But then you got to take, he's like, okay, this year you got to take trig, trigonometry, calculus, physics. Then you got to get into a really good engineering program, apply to NC State. You got to have at least, and back then a perfect score on the SAT was 1600. He's like, you got to have at least a 1400. Yo, I scored 870. Duh! Like Neanderthal. My knuckles literally dragged when I walked the ground. You know what I thought? I have chosen not only to not be in the NBA, but I decided I'm not going to be a fighter pilot. Why? Because the path is difficult. I want to fly them. I want to be the main storyline of Top Gun 2. But when I counted the cost, it wasn't worth it. I'm not even going to try. I would have probably not even made it. Probably. Imagine driving, being driven by the goal to run for public office at a high level. Very few people pursue certain pathways in life. It's very difficult and requires so much sacrifice to become an elite marathon runner or elite in your profession or field. Much must be left behind for these pursuits. How many people that pursue a career in music or acting have wrecked marriages because they have to leave that behind? In the end, what motivates people is ambition, 
as well as corporate jargon such as return on investment or ROI, which some of you are learning about in your business 200-level classes, or risk versus reward. We have to determine if something is worth the narrow pursuit and its demands. Anything of high value is going to cost something. We're living in a day and age where there's an increasing sense of entitlement. People assume that they deserve what they don't work for. When we think of the gospel, we indeed receive what we cannot earn and that which we do not deserve, but we receive it by grace. By grace, we are saved through faith, and we receive it because Christ has paid for it. The demands of the gospel and salvation that we are given requires every part of our lives. So the path to follow Jesus is difficult. Because it's difficult, difficult the wide gate seems so much easier. The way the world offers seems so much easier but listen to me ladies and gentlemen it is not easier in the long run jesus tells us that he will carry our burdens and make the way light if we trust him and follow him but if the way is easy it is easy because jesus has flipped the value system and as the ultimate and original deconstructionist he has deconstructed what the world values It's interesting right now because there's this huge emphasis on deconstruction in the Christian faith. But the deconstructionists are a step behind because Jesus has already deconstructed the world's value system. He's building an upside-down kingdom. The world says get even. Jesus says love your neighbors. The world says it's okay to, to look as long as you don't touch. And then the world has now advanced to saying touch, taste, see, experience whatever your heart desires. But Jesus says if you can't stop from looking, then gouge your eye out. The world offers cheap and selfish anecdotes, but Jesus offers lasting joy through expensive grace and the healing of our soul. Number three, the way is narrowed because it is accompanied by persecution. Jesus taught us in the sermon that blessing comes from the Lord when we endure persecution for his namesake. And number four, the gate is narrow, but the way remains narrow all the way through to the end. So the observation is not just that the gate is narrow, but that it is a narrow path all the way into eternity. There are no days off in the Christian journey. We enter through a difficult and narrow gate, leaving all that this world offers behind. Then at no point on the journey do we look back to the world for comfort or for peace. Jesus said, no man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is worthy of the kingdom of God. We'll talk about that tomorrow morning then at no point on the journey can we look back to the world for comfort for peace jesus said that no man who puts his hand to the plow no man is worthy of the kingdom if he looks back we fix our eyes on jesus we keep our hand on the plow we fight and work and labor and plow our way towards the kingdom of heaven here it's helpful to have some principles of living on the narrow path the first one is this the narrow gate is a call to action To walk through the narrow gate requires that we repent of our sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. When we do that, we are justified by righteousness. The narrow path also is particular. It is a way of discipleship which leads to our continued and increasing holiness. It is a defined process. This is the process that we call sanctification. That of being conformed to the image of Christ. The narrow way additionally is ongoing. At the end of sanctification, we will be glorified, brought into the literal and eternal and physical kingdom of Jesus. Last, the narrow way is lonely. Jesus says in verse 14 that those who find it are few. This is why it's so critical that we 
bond ourselves and bind ourselves together in Christian community. This is why many of us felt the weight of separation during the pandemic. We crave Christian community. And some of you might be in a situation where you're the only believer at work or in a classroom or, or in your major, and you know what this feels like. And so Jesus says when we've chosen that path and we're on the narrow way, verse 15, that we're to beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inward, inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. So Jesus warns us of false prophets. And he says they will come dressed like us, talking like us, with an appeal that's hard to discern. But he says that inwardly they are ravenous wolves. He says that we need to pay attention to the fruit that their lives bear. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says of this. Our Lord then reminds us again of these things, first of all, by putting before us special warnings. The first is this one about the false prophets. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. The picture which we should hold in our minds is something like this. Here we are, as it were, standing outside that narrow gate that is straight, We have heard the sermon of Jesus. We have listened to the exhortation to come through the gate. We are considering what to do about it. Now, says our Lord, in effect, at that point, one of the things you have to beware of, most especially, is the danger of listening to false prophets. They're always there. They're always present, just outside the straight gate. This is their favorite stand. If you start listening to them, you're entirely undone because they will persuade you not to enter in at the straight gate and not to walk in the narrow way. They will try to dissuade you from listening to what I'm saying. There's always the danger of the false prophet who comes with his particular subtle temptation. I want to give you two examples of false prophets and false teaching in our day. There's a bunch. The one that I grew up with that was probably most prevalent was was one of legalism, but most of us are not so much probably in contact. Let me give you the two that are most prevalent. One is the prosperity gospel, and one is the social gospel, or what's now being deemed progressive Christianity. Prosperity gospel, social justice gospel. The prosperity gospel is well illustrated in the preaching uh, in poor cultures and countries and in urban America and third world societies in Africa, Asia, and South America where the prosperity gospel thrives because people long to be wealthy. And so the message is this, poverty is your hell, prosperity is your rescue. If you're living in poverty, if you're living in destitution, We can rescue you out of that with this gospel that says, leave that hell and come into this place of peace and joy and happiness. That's what the prosperity gospel offers. If I can just be financially in a better place, then I will thrive spiritually. Never mind that this is not the gospel that Jesus taught. Many people long for freedom from physical poverty, but the very danger of this type of false teaching is that it offers an earthly comfort by offering earthly solutions to a deeper spiritual and eternal problem. People long for something more than what this world can offer. But for this generation in the West, the better example is that of the social or progressive gospel. It is a social gospel that seeks to pursue social justice rather than holiness. 
The social justice movement stands opposed to the gospel of the kingdom which calls people to repent of their sins and believe on Jesus so they might be saved and have eternal life. The deceptive message of many modern social justice warriors who teach something that looks like liberation for humanity but is really only there to profit. The craziness of intersectionality and critical theory is that ultimately they don't strive to bring equality equality to minorities based on race, but they manipulate those minorities, those ethnic minorities, in order to advance a sexually perverse and secular agenda. The highest value that can ever be placed on a person is to recognize that they are created in the image of God and have an innate and inerrant dignity assigned to them by their creator. As Christians, we want to see people saved by the gospel, conformed to the image of Jesus. There is an eternal solution to the problem of fallen mankind, but what we're seeing in the world today is nothing more than a grab for power by sexually perverse people who will use anyone and everyone to achieve their end goal. The gospel calls us to real action, not fluff. And certainly not virtue signaling by people who are bearing under the weight and guilt of having been raised with a sense of entitlement. That's cheap. Virtue signaling is cheap. Listen to me very carefully. Hear my heart in these next words, okay? You notice I'm reading 90% of my sermons because this is very difficult content. And I don't trust myself to deviate from what the exegesis and the exposition has allowed for. So listen to me very closely in the context of what we're saying. Consider the founders of the popular social justice organization, BLM or Black Lives Matter. Let me be clear that the statement Black Lives Matter is one that I affirm and would die for. You hear me? The statement Black Lives Matter, I would fight to the death. In fact, I would not even fight but be willing to lay down my life for the salvation of the souls of those people who are oppressed in any way. Because ultimately that's what the gospel calls us to. But I believe that Black lives, more importantly, are created in the image of God with an errant, inerrant value and purpose. So what the gospel does is it raises the bar on what the social gospel calls us to. It's a, it's a greater value. It is the corporate organization that I disagree with and cannot support. You hear my heart. I know this, that as the father of an African-American daughter and an African-American son, that I feel an increasing weight to prepare them for life in this world. As I lay in bed with them at night and read the beautiful redemptive story of God's plan and purpose in the gospel, and as I pray over them God's wisdom and protection, just as I have for my three biological children, I pray and ask God for wisdom and how to lead them and parent them and prepare them to live in this broken world. And I speak the beautiful words of truth that they are fearfully and wonderfully made and that they're created as image bearers of God and that the sovereign God has bestowed upon them his image. He's given them value and purpose that God is to be worshipped and that the ultimate expression of that value and purpose has been carried out in the sacrificial work of Jesus to provide them with salvation and redemption. 
I don't want their value to be cheapened and poured out on the altar of a sexual revolution that is not driven by a desire for racial equality, but by desire and demand that is militant in nature that seeks to dethrone God, discard ethnic minorities ultimately, to disrupt the God of the universe and exchange the truth of that God for a lie, suppress the truth of the gospel in unrighteousness, advance a movement that is a revolution a prosperity gospel, and that every other fallacy that's been pushed from false teachers of our world ultimately drive at, which is to create a man-centered power structure, which is exactly what led to the fall and sin in our first parents in the garden. Hear me out for just a moment, please. And consider the founders of BLM. Two of the three identify as queer, whose ultimate goal, as stated from their own writings, is to drive the LGBTQ revolution. And it's not so much about racial equality. Never mind that in 2016, the goal of BLM was to raise $100 million. And it's a nonprofit. I can tell you, as as the CEO of a nonprofit, our books are open to the public. And you can go look at the salaries being paid to the founders, co-founders, and organizers of that movement. They are getting rich on the backs of under-informed college people. Listen to this quote. From the co-founder of the BLM organization, we foster a queer-affirming network. We gather with the intention of freeing ourselves from the grip of heteronormative thinking. In other words, we reject the biblical teaching of marriage and sexuality. Additionally, so, so you see what that's about. It's about sexuality. Additionally, they're seeking to disrupt and eliminate and ignore the biblical instruction for fathers to lead and love in the home as Christ would have them to. Another quote from their statement of belief is, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure, translated the biblical structure for marriage and family. We disrupt and reject that. For supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another. In other words, we don't want fathers. We don't want men leading our families. Ultimately, There's no goal for forgiveness or reconciliation. Today I read Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech again. And it is filled with redemption and value and gospel and purpose. And that is not what this is about. There's no goal for reconciliation. The scripture is clear that we as Christians have been given a ministry of reconciliation. The gospel unites us as one race, one ethnicity, with love for all and a conviction to share the truth of God's grace and kindness and mercy to all people so that all people might have the hope that is within us. Jesus can reconcile the most broken of relationships and societies. Where we need to repent, we should repent. Where we need to be called to action, the gospel calls us to action. The gospel unites us jesus unites us but he does so through the atoning work of his sacrificial death and resurrection he does so through the gospel the last thing i would say on that is this the social justice movement and progressive christian sway will have no lasting and eternal impact the gospel of jesus christ has stood the test of two millennia and will still be standing and the banner of Jesus righteousness is what we build our lives on because 10,000 years from now the gospel will still be prevailing when every other worldly philosophy will be gone 
will be gone. Social movements have no eternal value. There's no substance. Nothing is subjective, but everything is objective and relies on human emotion. No lasting and permanent solution is offered. But the gospel transforms people. It removes hate and replaces it with love. It takes a heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. It calls us to be one people under God around the throne of Jesus from every tribe, every race, every ethnicity, every creed, united as one people under God, bound together by the blood of Jesus as ministers of reconciliation. So with this as just two examples, we see that the world and its false teachers will offer a narrative that is contrary to what Scripture teaches. And often that, narrow, that narrative is very appealing. The narrow way leads us to everlasting life and peace with God and peace with one another. We should lead the fight. The church of Jesus Christ should lead the fight for racial justice, for class equality, for people to understand and know that they are created in the image of God and that He has bestowed on them value that is intrinsic. You know what that means? They didn't do anything to earn it. That value is projected onto them by God. And the ultimate expression of it is Jesus' work to provide salvation at the cross. In conclusion, ultimately, Jesus says a tree is known by its fruit. Our goal should be to produce good fruit in this world. We should love our neighbor. We should care for those who need Jesus. We should fight every evil from racism to fatherlessness to human trafficking to abortion to poverty and hunger. And we should do so in the name of Jesus for the advance of the gospel so that people could have eternal peace with God through salvation in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone.